When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly, and welcome to another edition of Cyberlaw Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. We're continuing our series of talking with authors who will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair this fall. And today we have with us Ari Berman, author of Give Us the Ballot, which is a winner of a notable, notable Book of the Year prize from... The New York Times book review. That that's quite a star on your paper there, Ari. Are you with us? <laughs> I am here. Thank you. What motivated you to want to write this book? Well, what really want, made me want to motivate it was the book is a history of the Voting Rights Act, and it's a history of voting rights since 1965. And last year was the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, so I wanted to tell the history at a moment when lots of people were focusing on it, um, but we're also in this new struggle, this new fight and debate over voting rights today uh, with new efforts to make it harder to vote, whether that is requiring strict ID to cast a ballot or cutting back on early voting or making it harder to register to vote. We've seen lots of these efforts in places like Florida. Uh, so it's not just history. It's something that people are once again living through. I'm really glad that you wrote this. I actually, I did voter protection in Florida in 2012. And I was in Broward County. And I was on the last night of early voting, I had, my job was to keep people in line and make sure they didn't quit after the polls close. For yep. those who are unfamiliar, um, once the polls close, if you're in line, you know, but before the time of closure, you're, you're allowed to vote. Um, the question is, is how long will that take till you get that opportunity? And Florida had done a number of um, interesting things that a lot of people didn't think they allocated enough voting booths to minority areas. But the other thing they did was they made the ballot extra long, so it would yep. take longer to, to operate. And we waited on a Saturday night. We waited until quarter of 11 with people. And you know, in terms of my job of keeping people in line, it, it wasn't a job at all. They all knew why they had to wait. And they were determined to basically say, hey, you know, screw you. I'm going to vote. And it just dawned on me that here I was in Florida, which is you know, not too far away from Selma, where this whole battle began you know, less than 50 years ago then. And um, it's a shame that you know here they are. They're still having to fight for the the very right that was seemingly was won in '65. Yeah, and you know the the, the long lines in in Florida really were not an accident, as you mentioned. You know there weren't enough polling places. There was a very long ballot, but I mean Florida also. Uh, cut the number of early voting days uh, very significantly. They went from 14 early voting days to just eight early voting days. They eliminated on a voting on the Sunday before the election when African-American churches held souls to the polls, voter mobilization drives, and we're seeing some of these same kind of efforts occurring uh, once again in 2016 where states like North Carolina have cut the early voting period and there's been very, very long lines. And that's one way to make it more hard to vote, which is just just uh, people wait so long in line that they don't want to, they don't want to deal with this. So um, we're seeing a lot of these kind of efforts today. Now, I, I get into this debate with a lot of people, and, and some people say, well, "Let's talk." One of the main um, restrictions you, you see um, for voting is requirement of a voter ID. Yeah, and, and some people say, yeah, "What's what's so hard about that?" And yeah, can you explain why that that for some that is a challenge? Sure. So, eighty-five to ninety percent of the public has 
valid voter ID. So it's not a problem for them. But for the 10% of people who don't have strict forms of government-issued ID, it can be a real burden. So let's take Texas, for example, where there's been lots of litigation against that state's voter ID law. They have one of the strictest voter ID laws in the country where you can vote, for example, with a gun permit but not a student ID. So in Texas, the courts have found that 600,000 registered voters, which is 5% of the electorate, don't have strict forms of government-issued ID, like a driver's license or a passport or a gun permit, for example. And then they found that there's real burdens to people obtaining them. First off, there's a discriminatory impact that African-American Latino voters are two to three times as likely as whites not to have these IDs, but also to be able to get a, a supposedly free ID card, you need underlying documents like a birth certificate. Well, some people don't never got a birth certificate. Other people have to pay money to get one. So you're, you're then having to pay for underlying documents, which is something that we used to think of as a poll tax. Then if you look at Texas, a third of counties in Texas don't even have a DMV office. So if you live in rural Texas and you don't drive and you don't have a DMV office in your county, how are you supposed to get 100 miles away to an adjoining county in a state that has no public transportation? So those are the kind of burdens. I, I understand why it seems like common sense, and for most people it's not an issue, but for those people... Um, that don't have these forms of ID or don't have access to the documents they need to get the ID, it can be very burdensome. Now, um, for example, I believe Georgia recently implemented that requirement and <laughs> parallel with them implementing that requirement, they also reduced the number of DMVs in counties that were primarily African-American. Yeah, it was actually Alabama that did that. Alabama, I'm sorry. But, but yeah, so, so Alabama said everyone needs to have strict voter ID. Then they eliminated 31 DMV offices in the state, including in most of the majority black counties in the state, the very place that you need to go to be able to get the ID. And so, I mean, that people, I mean, if you're, my thing is, if you're going to ID, you have to make sure that everyone can get it reasonably. And what we're seeing is in Texas and Alabama and other states, they're requiring stuff that not everyone has, that not everyone can get. And that can be very burdensome on some voters and has a clear discriminatory impact. You have states like North Carolina. The impact of various you know, changes in the law for voter ID. And, and they actually analyzed it based on race. Which, which ones did they, did they choose to implement? So North state because uh, so in, in 2013 the Supreme Court undercut a key part of the Voting Rights Act and they ruled that those states with a long history of discrimination no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. North Carolina was one of those states that had to approve their voting changes and a month after the Supreme Court's decision North Carolina passed a really sweeping rewrite of their election laws. They didn't just require voter ID but they for example cut back on early voting, they eliminated same day voter registration, they eliminated out of precinct voting, they eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds and the fourth circuit court of appeals in a decision this summer said that that law was intentionally discriminatory on a republican specifically targeted the methods that african-americans used to successfully increase voter turnout like early voting and like same-day voter registration they said that the law in in the words of the court targeted black voters with almost surgical precision and they said that there was no evidence of voter fraud in North Carolina, their ID law would stop. And indeed, they said that the voter ID law might actually lead to more voter fraud because it exempted strict ID for absentee ballots where fraud is more common, but didn't require ID for in-person voting where fraud is much less likely and are much less likely to get caught if you try to commit that kind of voter impersonation. So uh, that decision really was uh, a very uh, clear reminder uh, of what the real purpose of these laws are. And it, was, and it was a really sort of striking rebuke to those people that claim that this is not a big deal. Now, the Supreme Court case, you refer to County versus Holder. Mm -hmm. And um, now Justice Roberts, as he hadn't he been against extending the Voter Rights Act when he was in the Reagan administration? Yeah, that's a very good point. So Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion that gutted this. has a really long history on this issue. Uh, he was, as you mentioned, a young lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department. After he graduated Harvard Law School, he went to work 
Department. And basically, one of his chief responsibilities when the administration was locked in a major fight with the Congress over whether to reauthorize parts of the Voting Rights Rights Act are temporary and had to be renewed. And the Congress was embarking on a major effort to renew and actually strengthen the Voting Rights Act. And the Reagan administration was not at all in favor of this. And Roberts wrote memo after memo after memo to members of Congress, uh, basically arguing that in his words, violations of the Voting Rights Act should not be made too easy to prove. And he actually lost this fight. The Congress overwhelmingly reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. You had Democrats like Ted Kennedy, who joined forces with Republicans like Bob Dole. Reagan signed the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. But what we see is that this remained a very big issue for Roberts. And when he became Chief Justice, when he got in a position of the Voting Rights Act, uh, he uh, and I think offered a decision that was really out of step with the facts because he basically said voting discrimination was largely a thing of the past. And then we see all of these North Carolina and other states basically saying that uh, Republican legislators in many cases were intentionally discriminating against people of color following that decision. And, and that's the interesting thing. And keep in mind, Voting rights, and here's the thing that I find troubling, and actually I wrote about this in Huffington in September. Um, I wrote a piece challenging Republicans to take a stand against bigotry. Um, the bill that, that was in, the, the law that was invalidated was 2006, the Voting Rights Reau- Reauthorization, and um, passed 300, 390 to 33 in the House and passed unanimously in the Senate. And it was introduced by um, Republican you know, Judiciary Chairman Jim Sensenbrenner. And so you have this overwhelming support for this bill. Robert says they didn't do sufficient fact-finding. says that that's ridiculous. He introduces a bill to basically um, repudiate the law and, and make the findings necessary to bring back that, um, was it Title V, um, the rights of the you know, Justice Department to more strictly enforce the Voting Rights Act. And um, it sat there. It's out there, exactly. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the Supreme Court didn't rule that this part of the Voting Rights Act was forever unconstitutional. It ruled that Congress needed to modernize it, that if they were going to require states to approve their voting changes with the federal government, it needed to be based on more contemporary data. Now, I personally think that the the previous formula, uh, while not perfect, was working fine. Um, But the fact is, members of Congress in both parties introduced legislation to modernize the Voting Rights Act. And as you mentioned, there was bipartisan support for it in both the House and the Senate. Uh, But Republicans have refused to move it. Um, Mitch McConnell uh, in the Senate hasn't done anything on it. Paul Ryan in the House says he supports restoring the Voting Rights Act, uh, but he, he he hasn't instructed his committee chairs who are opposed to this to do anything. So that's effectively killing it as well. And I think you're right. If, if Republicans were really serious about repudiating Trump, they were really serious about uh, repudiating bigotry and trying to reach out uh, to different kind of voters, to trying to reach out to new constituencies and show that the Republican Party is a big tent, you'd think that they would be serious about restoring the Voting Rights Act. You'd think that they would immediately cease trying to suppress voters, whether it's through voter ID laws or cutting early voting or other types of efforts, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing them repudiate Trump's rhetoric, but not the very things that, that led, in my view, to Trumpism. And that, I'm glad you make that point, because that's precisely why I wrote the piece, was I don't want them, you know, at one level, they're, they're looking good because, hey, we're standing against racism because we're repudiating what Trump's saying, but then they're not doing anything um, beyond that. And, and here's an here's a easy example. I mean, Republicans, Democrats all agreed on this at one point. But the one thing – so what, what fact changed that made them against Voting Rights Act? Well, that, that's a really good point is that the, the Voting Rights Act always had very, very strong bipartisan support. I mean there were, there were small pockets of people that opposed this, but basically every time it came up in the Congress, it was overwhelmingly approved. And I think you know, to me, one of the things that really changed was the election of President Obama um, because when Barack Obama was elected as the first black president – there were 5 million new voters that cast a ballot. And 
Of those 5 million new voters, 2 million were African American, 2 million were Latino, and 600,000 were Asian American. And they voted 75% for President Obama. And I think that really set off alarm bells among Republicans. And they felt like they weren't going to win these changing demographics. So instead, uh, they had to make it harder for them to participate in the political process. That instead of trying to reach out to new voters, they would instead try to suppress their votes. And I also think at the same time, there was a very concerted movement to challenge the Voting Rights Act in conservative legal circles, knowing that there was a five-member conservative majority on the court. So I think you both had the Republican Party shift, and then you also had uh, very influential actors uh, within the conservative legal movement who were bringing these cases before the court. And then both of these uh, efforts intersected. And there was a view that, you know, with Barack Obama in the White House, with Eric Holder at the Justice Department, that the Voting Rights Act had just turned into something um, that was, you know, being used to benefit Democrats or being used to benefit African Americans, as opposed to something that was really, you know, helping the country more broadly. We're going to talk more about um, this very vital issue of voter suppression. Um, But first, we have to take a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now at cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back, and we're talking to Ari Berman, who is the author of Give Us the Ballot, which is a New York Times book review, um, notable book of the year um, from last year, and uh, he will be appearing at the Maui Book Fair. Brennan Center's study um, found that from 2008, Republicans-led efforts to suppress seven of the 11 states with the highest African-American turnout in 2008, and nine of the 12 states with the largest Hispanic population growth in the 2010 census. Hmm. <laughs> I would tend to say that's causation. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would say that. So what happened was that the the, the Voting Rights Act required states with a long history of discrimination to approve their voting changes with the federal government, and, and that covered most of the South and then some other parts of the country. And as I mentioned, it wasn't perfect. There were places like Ohio where there had been major voting problems that weren't covered uh, under this section of the. But if you look at U.S. history, and if you look at even recent history, states like Texas and Louisiana and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and North Carolina and Florida, they have a history of discriminating that's beyond most other states. So even though voting discrimination was not concentrated in the states that had to approve their voting changes with the federal government, these states were still the worst offenders. And I think there was very good reason for the Supreme Court to say that this law is not perfect, uh, but it's still getting the worst of the worst. And if Congress wants to tweak it, if they want to expand it, if they want to put in some of the states in the north uh, that are doing it, they can do that. Uh, But basically, we're not going to say you can't catch anybody 
because you're not catching everybody. At least you're catching the worst actors and stopping the most egregious violations of what we saw since the Supreme Court got to the Voting Rights Act. That's now much more difficult to challenge these kind of restrictions. You can still do it, but only restrictions are being struck down. And the lawsuits are very expensive. They take a lot of time. And in the meantime, while the cases are working their way through the system, people are being disenfranchised. Right. They, they, get, they get the benefit. The states get the benefit now as opposed to the people who are exactly. facing discrimination and getting the benefit. So the whole burden of proof has shifted now. And it's interesting because in our democracy, you know, no right is, you know, is more sacrosanct than the right to vote. Um, you know, Supreme Court once said, no right is more precious in a free country than that of having a voice in the election of those who make the laws under which a good citizen must live. Other rights, even the most basic, are illusory if the right to vote is undermined. Well, and that's what's really strange about this whole debate is we always talk about how important the right to vote is. We always talk about how fundamental the right to vote is. But throughout U.S. history, we've restricted that right over and over and over. I mean, from the very founding of our country, only white male property owners could vote uh, for for many, many years. African-Americans, Latinos, other uh, minority groups could not vote. And even today, people keep trying to find new excuses for why some people shouldn't be able to participate as opposed to there being uh, a settled debate. Like we have a pretty much settled debate over the First Amendment. We have a right to free speech in this country. And and some people want to restrict it, but basically people believe that that free speech is is, uh, nearly absolute. But we don't have that same kind of consensus about the right to vote. And I think it's unfortunate that that we haven't reached a consensus on making it easy for everybody to vote. And instead, there are still uh, new attempts to try to restrict it. And so the, the question then goes, well, we need, and particularly now with Trump saying, you know, there are all these illegal aliens and other people going to vote on um, November 8th. Is there a problem with voter fraud that this, is there, there's a solution out there, which is, you know, these voter restrictions Is there a problem out there that needs to be solved? Well, first off, I don't believe there is a big problem. I I think that voter fraud is a very small problem in American elections. And voter impersonation, which is the kind of thing uh, that a voter ID law, for example, would stop, is exceedingly rare. We've heard this statistic mentioned a lot recently uh, that since the 2000 election, uh, there were only 31 cases of voter impersonation out of a billion votes cast. And I don't even believe that the restrictions themselves are solutions, because as I mentioned earlier, the fact that North Carolina didn't require voter ID for absentee ballots, where fraud is more common, but did require ID for in-person voting, where fraud is extremely unlikely, to me is is quite curious. And I think if you drill down more on that data, what you see is that absentee ballots are more likely to be cast by Republican-leading voters, people who are older, people who are members of the military, uh, whereas uh, in-person voting is more likely to be done by Democratic-leading voters, particularly voters of color and younger voters. So so I, I think that this has never been about stopping voter fraud. This has always been about trying to shape an electorate uh, that would that would benefit one party over another. With regards to things like uh, you know, undocumented immigrants, illegal aliens voting, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, if you're here undocumented, presumably you're trying to work, trying to create a better life, trying to send money back to your family. Why would you risk a felony? Why would you risk deportation uh, just to just to vote. I mean, most uh, of these kind of people are trying to stay out of the sh- trying to stay out of the system, trying to stay away from any sort of prosecution. Right. Uh, so I, I just don't see it. Just doesn't make any logical sense why they would do that knowingly. In fact, one of the one of the of you know, voter suppression that is very subtle is just having police at the polls because you know, particularly you know, the immigrant communities sometimes are intimidated by them long history of police showing up at the polls. I mean, in, in discriminatory ways. I mean, remember, it was the police for many, many years that enforced segregation in the South. So it was people like Bull Connor in Birmingham and Sheriff Jim Clark in Selma uh, who were really on the front lines of enforcing segregation. So there's a very long history with the police uh, and voting. You know, when Trump said that law enforcement 
should wash voting. I mean, that's illegal in a lot of states. He said it in Pennsylvania where there's a prohibition on law right. enforcement being at the polls unless they're there to, to, to break up a dispute or something like that. And so uh, and in violation that, of a New Jersey consent decree. And a violation of a consent decree where all these off-duty officials bring guns at uh, black and Hispanic polling places in the 1980s. And so I think there's lots of valuable work that law enforcement does, but monitoring the polls is usually uh, not something that they need to be doing unless uh, asked to do it because of some kind of dispute. And, and so where do you see this going? You know, is there a possibility with a, um, a Democratic Supreme Court that um, Shelby might get overturned? Well, I, I think Congress needs to needs to over. I think Congress needs to act because it's Congress that's been the one that that passed and then reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. So I think you know Congress right now has the power to restore the Voting Rights Act. But there's a lot of, a new Supreme Court could do. A new Supreme Court could expand the powers of the existing Voting Rights Act. If Congress passed anything, it would certainly be challenged before the Supreme Court, so the Supreme Court would be more willing to uphold the constitutionality of a new Voting Rights Act if Congress passed it, if there was a 5-4 uh, Democratic majority. Uh, I think the 5-4 the Democratic majority would also be more skeptical of voter ID laws, would be more skeptical of felon disenfranchisement laws, and I, I think that the whole debate about voting rights would shift because for many, many years, voting rights advocates were playing defense with John Roberts as chief justice. And I think uh, that if, if there was a court that had a majority that was sympathetic to voting rights, uh, you, would, you would see that, that this whole issue would be dealt with differently. So uh, what response have you, are you getting to this book? Well, I've been getting a very good response. Uh, the book's been out for since August 2015, and I've been doing lots of events. It's, it's been getting a lot of media. It's been uh, it's been reviewed very favorably, and I think it's been eye opening for a lot of people I've talked to uh, that either didn't know the history of the Voting Rights Act and appreciate learning about it, or didn't realize just how intense the efforts have been over the past 50 years to try to roll back the Voting Rights Act and try to roll back the 1960s civil rights movement. So um, I, I think that you know, in, in my own small way. Um, this has been illuminating. And, you know, one question I have, is the media giving Republicans a pass on these? Um, you know, there's stuff on the record, you know, there's a North Carolina legislature saying we need to discourage voting by lazy blacks um, and a whole other, you know, panoply of examples where it's clear what what's really behind this. Um, but I don't necessarily see the, the Republican Party getting grilled by the media on this. Well, I think that the media has been good at fact-checking what Trump has been saying about voter fraud and pointing out that there's really no basis in fact, but I don't think they've done the next step, which is to report on actual voter suppression, to hold Republican officials accountable for what they're doing, uh, and to, to say that, okay, well, uh, if there's any kind of election rigging going on, it's, it's by one party trying to make it harder for the other to be able to vote. And so I don't think the media has really taken that next step to, to really provide clarity on this, on this issue. And, and so if people want to learn more about this issue, where, where would you send them? Well, in, in addition um, to, to getting my book and to following my reporting at The Nation, I would urge people uh, to uh, contact, if they have any problems voting on Election Day, to contact um, 866-866-OUR-VOTE, uh, which is the election protection hotline. And there's also lots of good groups that are working on this issue, from the ACLU to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, to the Brennan Center for Justice to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. There's lots of different groups that are working on this issue. And um, and the book uh, "Give Us the Ballot" um, from Barry Berman it was was um, designated a must read by Congressman John Lewis, who had his head bashed open during that famous Selma march that led to um, the Voting Rights Act. So that must be quite an honor for you, sir. Yeah, it was it was nice to see that. And if people want to follow you, where where should they where should they go? Um, they can follow me on Twitter at, at Ari Berman. They can follow um, me on my website, which is just Ari.com, and, and they also have a Facebook page under my name as well. And I guess I, I just would close that, just to remember what, what President Johnson said after the Selma, you know, Bloody Sunday at Selma, and says this is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. And so I really commend you for what you've done. Would give us the ballot. And it's very timely. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about what we're going to see at the polls. 
Um, but so best of luck to you getting uh, the word out there. Where, where, when are you appearing at the Miami Book Fair? Uh, I am uh, speaking on November 20th at 2 p.m. at Miami-Dade College. And are you doing voter protection yourself? Uh, I'm reporting on voting rights, so I'm not going to be doing voter protection, but I'll be with people that are doing it. Great. Um, I'll probably be at a poll in Las Vegas. So, uh, All right. Good luck. Thank you. Um, I want to thank you very much for your efforts. And everyone, it's a must-read. Um, you heard it from John Lewis himself. Give us the ballot by Ari Berman and check him out at the Miami Book Fair. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, Bennett. I appreciate it. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrand. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Synergize your search engine education from 101 to rock star level only on Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're going to talk about the voter ID laws that are going on um, throughout uh, the country. There's about 31 states now that have uh, a voter ID system. And um, this is highly controversial because some suspect that they are really just voter suppression laws in disguise. But there's um, our next guest actually has worked and launched an organization to try to help um, citizens figure navigate and figure out what it is they need and how they can get it. Um, and it's not always as simple as it sounds. If you, if you live in rural Pennsylvania, for example, the DMV may not be far, may not be nearby, and you may not have access to transportation. Or and you know these are some of the issues that um, Vote Rider is trying to address. And um, Kathleen Vote Rider is that that name meant to evoke kind of the Freedom Riders? Uh, yes, it was. In, uh, Vote Riders was uh, the name was inspired uh, in part by Freedom Riders, who of course were civil rights activists who rode interstate buses into the South in the early '60s to challenge local laws and customs that enforced segregation. Uh, their bravery brought national attention to the issue. What Vote Riders does, which Vote Riders being a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, we use traditional and social media to attract uh, support and volunteers to on-the-ground organizations that are assisting citizens to get their voter IDs. And importantly, we spread the word to other communities with the hope of inspiring and galvanizing those who care about the fundamental right to vote to emulate these effective efforts. Now, um, obviously, there's a lot of focus on voter issues and the right to vote after the, the 2000 election and the controversy surrounding the, what happened in Florida. And between 2000 and 2008, did many states pass any voter ID laws? Uh, the uh, Just to kind of give you a little overview, we, we've, uh, there are now 31 states uh, that have voter ID laws in effect. 
uh, that require all voters to show ID at the polls uh, this November. Uh, since 2001, nearly 1,000 voter ID bills have been introduced in a total of 46 states. Uh, uh, and uh, the, the key years to highlight before 2011 uh, uh, were in uh, 2005 when Indiana and Georgia were the only states with strict photo ID laws, and then 2008 when the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Indiana law even in the admitted absence of any evidence of the, of the type of voter fraud these laws are alleged to prevent, but but also in the admitted absence of any evidence of 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 uh, you know or, or, you know disenfranchisement, let alone racial dis uh, racial discrimination in its impact. So this these some of these voter ID laws will likely go back up to the U.S. Supreme Court because uh, there now is plenty of evidence of of groups being. Uh, disenfranchised, uh, including on a racial basis, and that's uh, that's some of what's been troubling about the laws. I, I asked about the time period because, it, you know, of the thirty-one laws, it seems almost you know 20, twenty-eight or so or more were were done after um, we had a, a huge black turnout and elected the first black president. And so now all of a sudden there's a need for voter ID laws and, and you have open, you know, even statements more or less to the effect that that's the desired goal is to really have a, a pre-2008 turnout um, regardless of whether or not that's the will of the people. Right. Well, uh, so and it really accelerated uh, uh, last year in, in 2011 with with uh, legislation introduced in 34 states, uh, and and uh, uh, so and this year legislation was introduced in 32 states, uh, including new voter ID proposals in 14 states, uh, proposals to strengthen existing voter ID laws in 10 states, and bills in nine states to amend to amend the new voter ID laws passed in 2011. So and then you had. Four new voter ID laws passed in in Minnesota, which has uh, you know something on the ballot to see if that's going to go, uh, uh, whether there'll be an uh, an amendment to the Constitution. Plus, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. So, um, you're, you're out, but uh, the acceleration post 2008 really picked up in 2011 after, of course, the 2010 election when. Uh, when there were, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Republican legislature, legislators uh, voted into office in a, in, a, in a number of states. Now, there's been a lot of focus on Pennsylvania. Maybe that's a good state to talk about in, in terms of what you guys were doing um, and, and using the Internet and helping people understand what it is they need. Um, in terms of relatively to other states, how restrictive is Pennsylvania on voter IDs? In terms as it, as it was drafted, not how it's been changed since then. Right. Well, uh, you, you, just you're you're so right. Of the 31 states, there are various levels of of challenges that citizens face, and 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 let's be clear: those people who are, uh, you know, at, at risk of being disenfranchised are primarily those who do not have a current driver's license in the states in which they live and vote. So, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, the their law passed this past March, and uh, it's one of the five strict uh, voter ID states. Strict meaning voters who fail to show uh, a photo ID. Uh, you know, one of the ones that are 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 required under the each state's law are will be given a provisional ballot, and they'll have to show up after the election within X period of time. Uh, with their voter ID in order to get that provisional ballot counted. So uh, Pennsylvania's law that was passed in March requires a copy of your birth certificate with a raised seal and, of course, legal documentation of any change of name since then, uh, all of which, of course, costs money and can take a lot of time. Plus, you need a Social Security card, plus two acceptable documents showing 
your name and address. Now, the enactment of the Pennsylvania law has undergone serial changes, such as um, allowing electronic confirmation of your birth in Pennsylvania, but which then forced citizens to visit PennDOT, which is their version of the DMV, twice, then where you need to give only your social security number rather than needing your card, then allowing you to get a voter ID with lesser requirements only if you prove you're unable to get the documents that the law requires, and so many other changes until literally yesterday when the requirement uh, for two documents proving your residence uh, was eliminated. Uh, just, it's kind of been on a daily basis, all this uh, tinkering. So uh, everyone just is Just to be very clear, confused. the elimination is, is administrative. You know, there's been no legislative change. It's just they're Correct. not re- demanding it. Right. It's all coming out of the, the Pennsylvania, exactly, Department of State. And uh, so everyone, including, importantly, the, the PennDOT personnel, are, are, are confused. Now, and now uh, uh, Bennett, here's the big picture in Pennsylvania, what I call the insurmountable gap for those registered voters without IDs. When the legislation was under consideration, the government repeatedly advised that only 1% or over 80,000 voters would need to get their voter ID. A later analysis showed a discrepancy of 759,000 registered voters without state ID. And then a University of Washington professor at the trial challenging uh, the voter ID law uh, revealed a study where up to one and a half million voters would be disenfranchised. So to put this all into perspective, Pennsylvania announced on September 18 that only 9,478 voter IDs had been issued. 9,478 versus a million and a half or 759,000 or even 80,000 plus. Well, Um, I mean, let's address one of the common statements I hear from others, excuse me, is, and it was actually made by the sponsor recently. He was on a talk show and he was asked about um, Governor Romney's 47% remark and um, um, the um, Representative Metcalf, the sponsor of the bill uh, in Pennsylvania, said that um, 47% of the people are living off the public dole, living off their neighbors, hard work, and we have a lot of people out there that are too lazy to get up and get out there and get the ID they need. If individuals are too lazy, the state can't fix that. And so there's a perception that if people aren't getting IDs, it's because they're just lazy. And um, How real is that? I would say the correct perception is if you're not a lawyer, forget about it. Okay? It's that complicated. All right? So... Uh, if you don't have uh, a copy of your birth certificate with a raised seal, it could be because uh, uh, the where your your birth certificate was located, whether it was your home or the hospital or the the building of records, burned down. Okay, so how do you go about getting a copy of birth certificate? How do you do that if you were born by a midwife or at home? Uh, or somewhere where there is no, not the state-recognized form of a birth certificate. It, it in South Carolina, for instance, uh, that takes paying a lawyer somewhere between seven hundred fifty dollars and two thousand dollars, and takes at least eight months, if not up to a year and a half, to get what's uh, to get a, a replacement birth certificate. Now. Uh, so there's and now what if you have what if there's a mistake in your birth certificate uh, to correct that mistake in Wisconsin that costs two hundred dollars that's on top of getting the you know a copy of your birth certificate in the first place which is twenty five to fifty dollars then um, what if you were you changed your name through adoption you need a record of that what if you've married divorced remarried. You need all of those degrees, you know, uh, certificates of marriage and divorce, etc. Tra- I call it um, 
you know, it's, it's tracking your, your name. That's just for openers. That's just for the birth certificate. The Social Security card, there are a number of states where it is an absolute catch-22. Some of them, it seems as if to get a, to get a replacement copy of your, your Social Security card, you need to have a photo ID. Well, you're going to get a copy of your Social Security card because you don't have a photo ID. Uh, right. You know, uh, documents showing where you live, a utility bill, etc. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, I'm sure we all know uh, lots of, of people where there's at least a couple, if not, uh, uh, you know, children who are age 18 and over all living in the same home or their other group living situations, and those bills are in one person's name. What are the other people supposed to do if they're supposed to show up with with all of these documents? Also, these are people, again, who don't, essentially, they don't have cars because they don't have a current driver's license. Your your local DMV can be 100 miles away, and the days and hours it's open can be few or even rare. My favorite one is in Wisconsin where there's a, a DMV that is open uh, every fifth Wednesday of the of the month, which means that that <laughs> branch is open four times a year. Okay, a- so, except during the, except during Green Bay season. When, yes. uh, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's an important thing that gets I, I, you often don't hear. There actually is a provision in the Constitution, the Twenty Fourth Amendment that says the right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president, for electors for president or vice president, or for senator or representatives in Congress shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax or other tax. And, you know, to, it sounds like paying a couple hundred dollars just to get your birth certificate to um, get, an, get their ID to, so you can vote is a poll tax. Well, what they hang their hat on, the, the states hang their hat on, is the fact that if you're very persistent about it, uh, they will ultimately uh, give you a, a voter ID where, where they don't charge you for it. What is what, what belies that and is that to get the underlying documents to, to for, for where you're at the point where you can get the voter ID all of those cost money. So you, you know, it's it's it. You're you're absolutely right. It is it is uh, certainly uh, functions as as a poll tax uh, to to get to the point of getting that voter ID. And uh, you know, unfortunately, as I said, you have to be very persistent. Oftentimes, when you're at one of these uh, DMV uh, branches, because uh, the, the you know the personnel can be. Uh, you know, likely confused by all the various laws, all the changes, etc., and they insist on charging the thirteen dollars and fifty cents. Pennsylvania is now um, at the point where they're saying, "Okay, if you give us all the documentation, including the receipt showing you paid for it, we will reimburse you because you shouldn't have had to pay for ultimately the voter ID." That's the way they get around the poll tax. And, and yeah, um, the problem though is that if before I even decide to go through that process, I may be discouraged from doing so because I don't have the money. So even if ultimately, you know, if I if had had I not not knowing this, but had I endeavored to do so and was able to talking my way out of paying the fee, I'm not going to know that unless I try. And a number of people might be discouraged just because of it. Well, they're going to be discouraged not only by the financial aspect, but, you know, let, let's face it. Uh, I would say many, perhaps most of the people who, who don't have uh, a, a state ID or, or a driver's license, but you can get it in all these states, they do have a state ID. They don't have that, or, and they're not, not trying to get that because they don't have the wherewithal. They don't have... The, they're not lawyers, and they don't have uh, the, the time, and they don't have the money. So, you know, they're people who are working, uh, you know, two or three jobs. They have families. They're just pedal to the metal as it is. To take off a day, and it does 
take a day at least, if not over time. There are lots of stories where people have put in, you know, ultimately three days worth of time to, to ultimately get their voter ID. And, of course, they don't have a car, so they have to take a bus. Or they may have to take three buses each way. And so that's time and that's money. And, and a lot of these people do not have either of those. We only got a few minutes left. Um, Kathleen, if people want to learn more about this, well, what's the best place for them to go? Well, uh, absolutely to VoteRiders, V-O-T-E-R-I-D-E-R-S uh, dot com. Uh, uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, lots of, of programs that we're, we're focusing on to, to assist these uh, local organizations like uh, the Philadelphia League of Women Voters with their Voter Advocates Program. These are uh, trained volunteers who are accompanying citizens into PennDOT to make sure that process goes smoothly. We're producing videos of compelling citizen stories so that the media and public will have a better understanding of, of, of what's going on. Um, uh, we, uh, you know, this is uh, a time of, of where people can uh, make uh, an, an historical difference in our country, both now and, as you said, for years to come. Uh, whether reaching out to family members and friends if they live in a voter ID state to make sure they have their voter ID or supporting local organizations that are helping or, frankly, contributing to vote riders will mean that those citizens who really want to vote will be able to vote, and, um, and we really urge you to contact us at VoteRiders.com. Uh, we can, you know, answer questions, and uh, it's... It's, it, it, it is absolutely Elizabeth Drew and, and you, Bennett, are right. They, this, is a, this is a matter that's going to go on way beyond uh, this November election. There are various laws that are, uh, are coming uh, into play in 2013, in 2014. There are laws that are uh, currently essentially enjoined and are on appeal. So it's... Uh, uh, this is this is something that we all need to pay attention to, uh, so that uh, you know American citizens can exercise well, their fundamental right to vote. And we hope they will, um, Kathleen. I want to thank you for joining us, and I'm sorry we, we had to cut you short, but um, thank you again. And this is a very important issue, so please check it out. So I want to thank you, everyone, again for joining us. I want to thank our guests for such. Um, and their insights and um, look forward to talking to you next week. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Court is adjourned. See you next week. opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited.